welcome to the Film Situation Podcast. I'm so happy to have Matthew Rudenberg on the Film Situation Podcast. Welcome, Matthew. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. I got to say, I think you're the first cinematographer that I've had on that I I think you have the best lighting in your actual Zoom setup. (laughs) Is it like recording in 24 frames a second? Well, you know, I also, I, I do play some video games, so I have a PC which doesn't have a webcam. So, um, you know, during the pandemic, when we all went virtual for um, pre-production, I needed a webcam. So I have my old DSLR, it's like a 5D Mark II, and I figured out I could plug it into my computer and use it as a webcam. Um, and then, you know, being a DP, I, I can't help myself. I just keep like fidgeting and tweaking and, and trying you to make keep it tweaking better. things. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Kinda, yeah, my friend, kind of an obsession. my friend who is a DP here in New York, Harry, shout out to Harry Indio Ramkish, and he also has a nice setup, but a lot of other DPs that I speak to just um, don't seem like they put a lot of thought into it, but I like it. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, no, it's fun. It's just fun to fiddle with technology. So where where are you based out of? So I'm in Los Angeles. I'm in uh, the Highland Park area. It's, um, you know, it's a nice cloudy day outside, hence the soft light. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I was there a couple of months ago doing a shoot, producing on a Very project. Cool. And yeah, it was, it's great. I always like visiting L.A. Oh yeah, it's, it's you know it's a great it's a great place to shoot. I mean, I've been here twenty years, and you know, um, there's just great crews, great people, and I feel like a lot of projects kind of start here and then then you know move out from there. Uh, you know, it's it's a great town if you're you know meeting people and networking for that because um, you know often I'll go out of town for a job, but I feel like I wouldn't have gotten that job if I wasn't based in LA to start. So I detect a bit of an accent. Where are you originally uh, from? Well, I actually grew up in South Africa. Oh, okay. Um, cool. Yeah. So I was there for about, you know, 20 years before I made the change over here. Um, I, um, you know, was 13, I think, when apartheid ended. Um, so I, I grew up, you know, sort of in a, in a time of like societal change over there. But um you know, I got an opportunity to uh, come to the States and I, you know, was very interested in film at the time. So I was excited about the opportunity of uh, coming here and going to film school and, uh, you know, moved over. And uh, Have you ever seen the you know, South go- African film Totsi? Totsi, yeah, yeah, of yeah. course. Um, no, it's, it's yeah, the, the South Africa is an interesting place. <laughs> I'm a big, uh, you know, District that's, 9 fan as well. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good film. I had uh, the guys that did the the score, the composers of that film on oh, the wow. podcast. Very cool. That was yeah, actually it's... on another podcast that I was hosting on the Globe Screen podcast that they were on. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, you know, you know, the levels of poverty and like the interactions between between the two. It's um, you know, it's a very complex place. Do you still have family there, and do you still visit South Africa? I do. My my mom is still there. Um, and I've, I've taken my family over there a couple of times and, um, you know, we've traveled, we actually went on a fun trip where we traveled around by train. Uh, there's like, there's a whole, there's like a, an interesting situation where, cause the trains, the, the, the trains are owned by the government, but, um, they allow like 
private individuals to run trains on the track. So there's sort of like this guy, I think, who owns like a bunch of like old, we bought a bunch of old engines and train carriages and then revamped them. So it's like a, a hotel on wheels, basically. That's wild. You, you yeah. Travel around on, but also the gauge of the tracks is narrower than it is in America. Um, so it's actually pretty rocky. <laughs> so it's <laughs> kind of like being on a boat. That's, that's funny you mentioned that because I was just on, uh, the train i live like a i live in westchester which is the suburbs of new york and i take the metro north train and i was putting some camera gear on top of the railing and it's usually pretty stable but i had so much gear that um it was like in the also on top of the person that was like seated in front of me and the train just happened to be really wobbly that day and i was yeah. like oh man i think this this like really heavy thing like backpack full of wires might fall on top of this guy I was like, right. let me just uh i was like is it okay i was like let me just let me just go and play it safe and grab it <laughs> yeah when you're loading your like 15 10 pelicans into like the overhead compartments of an yeah, airplane and exactly. like and there's someone per soul underneath it and it, it barely fits and it's yeah heavy. you're like um oh, probably be okay um so i guess tell, tell me a little bit about g give it a bit of an introduction to yourself and, and your background. Sure, sure. Well, you know, as I said, I, I grew up in South Africa. Um, you know, I um, as a kid, I was always uh, my I was always going to art lessons. It was like a big part of my my childhood. Um, was you know a lot of practice of like you know drawing and um, experimenting with different mediums, um, and. You know, I always, um, it was also like, used to really enjoy reading. So, you know, I'd read all these stories and I'd see pictures in my head. And then I was always trying to, you know, take those pictures and, and put them, you know, on paper or canvas and experimenting with, um, you know, different ways to do that. I, you know, I tried oils and pastels. And then, you know, later on, I experimented with, um, uh, with sketching and printing and lino cutting and, you know, a little bit of graphic design either as well. But, um, you know, when I went, I started, when I started playing with photography, it really started making, you know, the most sense to me. I did, you know, some black and white, you know, processing and developing and, and I sort of figured out that like the best way to get those, you know, pictures that I saw when I was like reading books into reality was, you know, using lenses and, and lights um, and manipulating the image in various ways, like sort of taking reality and like turning it into, you know, what you want it to look like. And, you know, that was, you know, kind of when I, you know, realized that uh, that cinematography was, you know, the, the goal for me. But I always keep that, um, you know, artistic aspect in the back of my head because when I was you know studying art and, and practicing um I was also you know studying art history and I think you know there's a lot of like interesting stuff there that you can sort of you know bring into um into filmmaking I mean and not just I mean obviously there's the you know Caravaggio and like the, the the old masters that used like the source of lighting and looked at the motivation of lighting but I think what always interested me is if you really break it down to the very like basic principles of what is an image and what is composition and like how does that affect mood and your experience of 
of watching something, that's when it gets kind of really interesting to me, the abstract stuff. Like if you look at, you know, something like Mark Rothko, who's like does the color field paintings, where it's just like an area of one color, an area of another color. Um, you know, what do those colors do to you? How do they interact? Um, how are they composed? Or like, you know, like the, the German expressionists, right? Like um, um, Vasily Kandinsky would like try to like create moods with like swirls of color. I always try to like think of ways to bring um, those elements into uh, into filmmaking because I think there is a lot of abstraction. I mean, if you just think about an out of focus image, right? You know, you're, you're taking, you know, details and then blurring them and creating you know, these areas of color and shape, like an out-of-focus light, the bouquet of that is kind of an abstract shape, um, you know, a color on a wall. There's a lot of ways you can play with those, like, you know, color elements and compositional elements to, you know, to create mood. So anyway, I mean, I went on a tangent, but basically I got really excited about cinematography and manipulating these elements, and, and I got this opportunity to um, move to America. So, you know, I went to film school and um, and I, I went to UCLA Film School and just sort of, I was an undergrad and I just jumped into shooting every student film I could. You know, at the time we were shooting on 16, which was, you know, a lot of fun. And, you know, there's a lot of opportunities to play. It's almost sometimes like alchemy. You can do like weird things like cross-processing the film or, you know, which gives it crazy colors are loaded in backwards. And then like you shoot, you know, exposed through the emulsion and we're always, you know, playing with, you know, fun stuff like that. Um, and I graduated and worked on indie films and I ended up working with um, this gaffer who DP'd one indie feature. His name was John Buckley. Um, and at the time I was working on a lot of like indie films and, you know, you, it wasn't like now you can sort of see a monitor and you can like see if the image is good right away. But at the time it was all in film. So you kind of had to know what it was going to look like in your head. Um, and so, you know, in the indie world, a lot of less experienced DPs and, you know, sometimes the footage wasn't, you know, always coming out as amazing as it might have. And then I worked with this, this gaffer, turned DP, John Buckley, and everything he lit was just absolutely phenomenal. Um, he actually was a gaffer on um, Titanic and Memoirs of a Geisha and like these really big movies. And this oh, wow. was like a small indie film that he was shooting. Um, and he was doing stuff that I hadn't seen. Like he would take, you know, just a 12 by of light grid and put an image 80, which is this big fluorescent unit through it and create this soft source. Um, but at the time I wasn't as familiar that he was doing the same stuff for Emmanuel Lebeski, Chivo, or, you know, Dion Beebe, like this was, you know, kind of his style that I think maybe, you know, I don't know if he got it from them or he brought it to them, but, um, but everything he did just looked so beautiful and cinematic. So I, I, I sort of realized that I had been working as a second AC, but there was so much to learn in lighting and, and I sort of switched over into the, the lighting department. And, um, but very quickly, like those skills led to me, um, you know, doing more shooting because, you know, yeah, I, just, you can... I, I just looked up mm -hmm. John Buckley and saw that he also worked on Avatar and 13 Hours and Green Lantern, so many films. Oh, yeah. Dream he was, Girls, he, yeah. 
No, he's and he you know the, was he like a mentor figure to you? You know, I only worked with him for that one film, but you know, he just he did leave a huge impression on me. I, I don't, you know, I probably should have pursued uh, you know longer contact with him, but it just sort of changed my uh, path. Yeah. And did you find when he was working as? Uh, do you feel like most cinematographers think of? light before is there sort of an order of operations where you're thinking of composition and then thinking of i mean is it just in tandem or because i think i feel like as a director i'm thinking of composition almost first and then kind of thinking about the light afterward not that not trying to say that it's an afterthought in any way but it's just my i feel like that's just my how my brain works is thinking about compositions of shots first and then right. sort of I, I think it's a very interesting question. I think it's a very interesting question. I think that like, you know, everyone has their own approach. And I think there's a lot of variation there. Like some DPs are very light focused, and some are very compositionally focused. Um, and I think to some extent, it's your background, like a lot of DPs come up through operating. And so, you know, they may be more focused on on you know, finding that composition and others, you know, I do think that there's a balance, but I think it just varies um, from DP to DP. Um, I mean, for me personally, um, you know, it's sort of a, a combination element. To me, like, you can't frame a beautiful image if you can't light it nicely. So, you know, I'm, I'm sort of trying to keep those things in mind in tandem in that, like, I'm looking at a, a possible setup and I'm thinking, okay, there's a nice window there or the sun will be there for backlight. So, you know, this will be a, a nice composition and, you know, a, a nice frame because I can, you know, light it in a way that, that it will be beautiful. Um, and so, you know, there's that, I think there are those combinations, um, you know, that work together, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And do, do you find on most of the films that you're working on that you, have like one or two sort of key lenses that you use throughout any particular film and then other other lenses that you also use interesting yeah i know it's also uh, it's a good question i mean i think i think the interesting thing about a project is it it's sort of like it kind of tells you what the right um lenses are for it sometimes you know as you're shooting, you you get a feel for like this lens is working, this lens isn't working, and you know I, I often find that I you know come out of a project saying like that was the hero lens of that project, but I don't usually go in with like a specific focal length in mind. I often have a general strategy, right? Like um, you know like I want this project to be um wider lenses up on the closer end which you know talking generally is kind of my preferred approach if i'm just speaking generally you know if you've got the ability to like have a wider lens and a little closer it really opens up the world and incorporates a background you know when you do a longer lens on on someone you really compress space and you make that abstract background you know, again, that we talked about, but you really limit the amount of the environment you see. 
Whereas, you know, if you get a little wider and closer, you really like show the space to the audience. And I think, uh, I also just have a general theory that I think the way we look at people, right? You know, obviously film is an abstract, you know, representation of what we see in reality. But I think, you know, the way we look at people when we talk changes, right? Because there's one way, if we're like laying in bed with a partner, and we're like this far away from them, right? We see this field of view, which is kind of like a wide angle lens. There's an intimacy there because you're like, your perspective on that person is that of a wide angle lens, right? Whereas if you see someone from a distance, like across a room, like obviously we don't actually zoom with our eyes, but the perspective of seeing them is like a long lens. They're far away, they're compressed. You know, it's so more I think of a voyeuristic than sort of feeling to it, yeah. Exactly. And I think that's a tool we can play with, you know, when we're uh, making a movie is we're sort of deciding, do we want, you know, this feeling of intimacy when we're close to someone or this feeling of distance when we're further away. So, you know, that's just a tendency I, I play with, which, you know, if I want to feel empathetic, you know, with our character, you know, I'll often, you know, do sort of an asymmetric coverage, right, where I'll keep the lens close to our main character. So we're feeling... Um, the audience is feeling uh, close to them. And then maybe the stuff they're seeing, if they're disassociated, I'll do on a long lens. So now that aspect is like removed and separated. So I, I do like, you know, that kind of thing. If you're doing a more of a subjective, like an expressive film, which I really enjoy doing, I love those subjective moments. Um, you know, I'll play that. But, but coming back to the lens, you know, often I'll find it's it's somewhere in like the 25, 32, 40, 40 millimeter range. Those like seem to be the lenses that I like gravitate towards, um, you know, in, in filmmaking um, because they have that like combination of uh, intimacy, but also they don't like distort space so much as a wide angle lens does. Like you don't you know, I mean, there's times where you want to bring like a 14 or a 16 millimeter very close to someone, but I think it, it can be distracting unless it's a deliberate choice for the uh, the language of the film. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And do you have a preference? Like, do you like to use Cook lenses, for example? Or mm. um, Again, I really sort of make that choice based on the project. Um, I think... Um, you know, there's a lot of really great lenses and, you know, I, I try to like look at the film I'm making and then, and then decide what is, what is the best choice for that, you know, particular project. I do prefer primes, you know, whenever possible. Um, but, you know, I did like a romantic comedy recently and, you know, for that one, I really wanted like a very soft, warm feeling. So for that cooks, you know, I went with the Cook uh, S7s and S8s, the full-frame Cooks and a Mini. Is, um, by the way, is this your film Zoe 102 that was right. released? Yeah, exactly. so I definitely want to talk about that uh, for a minute. And by the way, I love the opening sequence when it starts off through the roof and then it goes through the window into the restaurant and the opening right. uh, uh, scene of the film. I thought that was super cool. Oh, yeah, that was, that was a really fun one. I mean, you know... My director, Nancy um, Hauer, you know, is a very visual director and we, we spend a large amount of time in pre-production just like going through the film and like breaking down every shot 
in great detail and trying to find ways we could really add like um, elaborate shots to it. But this was something she had in mind from the start, which was the sort of um, birdhouse, a birdcage shot, um, you know, which starts from a helicopter shot and then like goes into um, meeting our, our main character. Um, but the, the challenge was, you know, the film was set in uh, Los Angeles, in Malibu, California, and um, where she shot on the East Coast in, uh, in North Carolina. Oh, no way. The film is set in, in sunny Malibu, but we, we shot in, in uh, Wilmington on the East Coast. And um, so to tie those things together, you know, we had to, you know, merge, you know, a shot that sort of sets the scene in, uh, in L.A. with um, our restaurant, which was on the East Coast. Um, initially, we had planned to do a drone shot over the Santa Monica Pier that then uh, wiped over the rooftop and, and entered the restaurant, but um, it turned out to be uh, not possible to fly a drone over Santa Monica Pier. I guess there's um, all kinds of rules about flying drones over people, but apparently there are not rules about flying helicopters over people. That, <laughs> so, that well, is wild. <laughs> I mean, you have to be a yeah. certain height. Let me, let me, right. Right. That makes that. sense. You, yeah. have, you have to be, a, you have to be much higher. You can't be so low. We have to be like 500 uh, feet. It's just funny to think that you it. couldn't get a uh, permission to use a drone. So you just use the right. helicopter. So uh, which I mean, I which really I was, that's awesome. No, it really was a, a blessing. I mean, our, our um, you know, pilot was phenomenal. Um, and the, the, the team actually worked on uh, um, Top Gun and like, you know, various other like high level movies. And, oh, and, and it cool. was a lot of fun. But we had to kind of re-envision that exactly how that opening shot um, went so that we could make the, uh, the merge. And then we used like CG to do a, a rooftop. And then we shot the other side in, in Wilmington, um, where we started with like a 50 foot techno crane that was um, up over the rooftop so we could wipe off the edge and then drop down. And we put a, a Ronin uh, a gimbal on that with a, a mechanical release. We played with the magnetic release a little bit, but there's more steps involved in releasing the magnetic one because you've got to all still have a safety catch. So we ended up going with uh, the magnet release and um you know we boomed down and then like pushed through some glass doors and then i, I had a couple of grips um hiding in the in the curtains <laughs> then they came out and grabbed it and my operator john layman was on you know the wheels like operating the head remotely as like um you know my key grip and uh um and uh, one of his guys were uh, carrying the the rig through the restaurant um Initially, I had suggested that they um, dress up as wait staff to be hidden, but <laughs> they, weren't, uh, they weren't excited about that. They weren't into <laughs> they that, huh? The but it, 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 worked out, it worked out great. And of course, we had to light the entire <laughs> restaurant so we could move through it and not see, um, you know, not see any lights. And um, so it, it, was a, it was a fun setup. It was a big setup. Um, but it was a lot of fun to pull off. Nice. Um, was there any other, well, any stories that you could share from working on that film that were? Sure. I mean, it was, it was a lot of fun. 
you know, it was, a, it was a really fun project. I mean, you know, that same sequence, I got myself in a little trouble because when I was brainstorming with Nancy, we we're trying to think of the end of the opening. And I was like, you know, it'd be great because initially, you know, there was some talk of her like walking out and being like super confident and cheerful. And, you know, Nancy's like, that's not really her mode. She's more, you know, Zoe is more of like, you know, causing chaos. Bull and in so, a china shop. Exactly. So I, I pitched the idea like she bumps into people and like, you know, there's a little physical comedy where she like knocks over a champagne bottle. Oh, so that, that was your idea of her bumping into the cake that was about to well, be delivered? That was kind of my idea to go into like a thousand frames per second <laughs> <laughs> to do that. Um, yeah, you well, know, cool. But, I can imagine that was super challenging to shoot. Well, it was, yeah, it was, I started a whole process of like, of challenges there, because when you shoot at a thousand frames per second, you need a lot of light. And, you know, when we shot in that restaurant, I mean, we were like at a two or two and a bit on the camera and like, there wasn't much light at all. So, um, you know, getting the light level up to a point where we could shoot a thousand frames would have been essentially impossible. But, um, and so what we did is we shot plates and then we, you know, built a blue screen outside and, and, you know, put condors overhead and used 18 Ks to like get ourselves up to, um, up to the light level that we could, could shoot that and then comped it in because, and even then like in daylight with like all that light, we were still pretty wide open at the lens just to, to get enough exposure to, to make that work. I mean, that was fun. There's other crazy, you know, stuff like, you know, one of the fun uh, setups I liked was there's a sequence where she's going through a phone and um, um, and trying to come up with, I mean, I mean, and looking over all her friends and what they've been doing with their life and all these things like, you know, pop up on the screen. Um, and we were going to do it as like a lock off shot and like have her jump through places. Um, but uh you know the day before it i was thinking about it and i was like it would be so much better if instead of a single lock-off shot if the camera could like pan through the set um and we had you know a remote head that I, you know a key grip david spencer had on his package and the thing about just you know most remote heads you can program in a repeatable move like very easily and so you know we kind of spontaneously decided to make that shot um this pan through so i had my you know my operator did a pan with the wheels but we didn't want it to be perfect so he like manually did a pan so it's like not exactly perfect and then recorded it and then just repeated it and then moved her through different places in the in the house and then my um my my dit andy bader like mocked up like very quickly just what it would look like you know, on the spot, uh, and we could see immediately that it, it would work. Um, so that was, you know, that was a fun setup, because it was a very spontaneous thing, but it, it ended up being, you know, quite complex. Yeah, some, I, I I know what you mean, but but it's it's a good feeling when you pull it off, right? Right, right, for sure. Yeah. So and you certainly did. So yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, By the way, I, I know that you also dp the movie blue mountain state uh ah, yes. thadland rise right, right, of, right. rise of thadland which uh mm -hmm. shout out to my good friend greg blake he uh i know he worked on that he was an actor that was on that movie for a few days as one of the nice. students yeah so that's how i first became familiar with the film 
Very cool. Yeah, that was actually in the same place that we shot Zoe, ironically. And no way. The same crew came yeah. back. It just happened to yeah. happen to be, or or was it the same well, production? Yeah, crew? I mean, it was. So what happened is I shot season three of the TV show Blue Mountain State in Montreal, um, and you know, I it was a really you know fun experience, and like I bonded with the the creators and the and the the cast. So when the you know the show was cancelled and when we uh, they managed to crowdfund enough money to make a movie, um, you know <laughs> we were going to shoot in South Carolina originally, <laughs> and um, I uh, I flew over there um, just as things were about to go. But um, it turns out that I don't know how much you know about Blue Mountain State, but it's a little raunchy. <laughs> well, I know I know that from watching the feature film, so I can imagine the right. series is like that as well. Right, right. So, so you know, so basically, the South Carolina Film Board wouldn't approve the script for a tax incentive. So, two weeks before we were supposed to shoot, we had to jump in our rented cars and drive up to North Carolina, where they were like, "Come on in." And so, it basically had to put together the entire film. Um, in two weeks, find locations, find crew, um, and, and get the whole thing going. But I mean, you know, that's the great thing about this industry is like when you work on a movie with people, you like, you just develop, you know, these friendships and relationships. I mean, the operator, so my AC on that film, then like halfway up, stepped up to operator, John Lehman, um, actually was my operator on Zoe 102 because you know we stayed in contact and when I was coming back in town you know I worked with him again <laughs> so and it's it's kind of funny you know how those things happen absolutely um how how often is it are you, are you ever working with the second unit crew I you know I don't do a lot of um i guess that those are more on action films right yeah i did do an action film um recently just before zoe i did this movie called die hard to die harder with uh kevin oh, hart with kevin hart yeah Cena. i'm familiar with the project i was going to ask you about that i haven't had it, so yeah in full disclosure i haven't seen it but i'm familiar oh, yeah. with it yeah no yeah. It, it was it was a huge it was a great you know, it was a lot of fun. Um, I worked with my friend, director Eric Appel, who had just come off the Weird Al Yankovic movie. Um, oh, that was a fun movie. Yeah. Yeah. And funnily enough, <laughs> Eric directed an episode of Blue Mountain State. <laughs> That's how I met him like, oh, cool. years ago. So it's, it's funny how the, the connections work. Yeah. But we stayed in touch. I mean, he's, you know, incredible, incredible director. And, um, you know, he called me up for you know, the, the Kevin Hart movie, which we shot in Atlanta. And, um, you know, we didn't have like a second unit for that. I, I, I shot the action sequences, but, you know, we had like the stunt coordinator who would like create these amazing pre-visualizations and, um, you know, we, we'd get together and, and, you know, work through, you know, putting together the shots uh, to make these was was were most of the shots pre-vised on that project so you know it was it was a lot of fun because um you know i do a lot of uh, i do a wide variety of genres and uh, you know in my career i like working on all kinds of stuff and finding the right way to which like, i think is know, cool I, look... I i think that's great to, like to me as a as a director i've been I've been kind of in a lane where I work on sort of crime stuff, but uh, funny enough, I always thought of 
that I, I would be working on comedies or something right. like that when I first got started. Right, right. Yeah, it, it's funny how things go. I mean, I started out, um, you know, working in a, a horror more than anything else, actually. I, I, I did like a series of like, you know, half million dollar horror films. And then uh, one of the ADs liked me and he was like, I need you, you should go meet um, these guys. One of them's name is Katzenberg. And it was uh, <laughs> Jeffrey Katzenberg's son, no David Katzenberg and yeah. Seth Graham Smith were putting together a non-union pilot for a comedy show. And they liked me and hired me to shoot the pilot and then it went union. And so suddenly I had this career <laughs> shooting was that, comedy. Was that Blue Mountain State? That was actually the hard times of RJ Berger it was an MTV comedy about a high school student with a large member. Um, another raunchy comedy. Um, and, um, you know, so then I, I sort of got catapulted into this, this dual career where I do a lot of like a comedy. And then I also, you know, I still, I love shooting like weird genre films, like horrors and sci-fis. Um, so, you know, but I, I always embrace any opportunity to try to find, you know, the style of a certain project. So, you know, like Zoe 102 is a romantic comedy, so I wanted to be warm and friendly. And we talked about using, you know, cook lenses. And then Die Hard was an action comedy. So I really wanted to sort of dig into a, a different look. So I went with the, you know, the Zeiss um, Supreme Radiance lenses, which have this like really cool uh, blue flare to them, you know, thinking that I would like lean into flair in these like action scenes. And I wanted it to have this like cleaner, like sharper kind of feel to like really like, you know, lean into the action. Um, and, you know, within that, I really wanted to build these environments where you could have these action scenes without, because when you shoot an action scene, you don't want to like have to nitpick every little bit of lighting because you've got to get a lot of beats and a lot of freedom with the cameras. Um, so you want to kind of create an environment that's going to look good. Um, so, you know, I really wanted to play with color contrast, like red versus blue, orange versus green, um, you know, purple and, and blue for the finale and like make these like color contrasting environments that were kind of interesting and then let the actors like, you know, have these fight sequences, um, you, within you, them. You tend to have the choice of who the colorist is on most of the projects you work on? It, it varies. It varies. Not, not always. Sometimes. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have worked with, you know, a lot of great colorists. I mean, um, you know, we had, I think it was Russell Lynch on, uh, on Dire Heart who did a really great job, you know, playing a little more contrast. And then, you know, for Zoe, I went with Ian Vertovec, who's, you know, one of my longest running relationships in, uh, in, in Hollywood. I've only done three features with him, but it's been over the course of like 12 years. <laughs> um, that, I know that was more of a hierarchy sort of look because of the nature, I guess, of the genre, right. but yeah, it looked right. great. Um, right, right. For sure. And Ian's, you know, a, a singular talent. I mean, he also does like Fincher films and, or, you know, he did like, uh, social network and oh wow um, yeah and he's you know really like a phenomenal talent and really interested in like pushing new technologies and, and finding ways to like make things better um and you know we did a lot of fun stuff you know on that um i know that you also 
with a cinematographer of a film called The Seven Stages to Achieve Eternal Bliss. I really nice. like how that looked, actually. I was watching. Oh, yeah, that, that was. Yeah. It, it was another like comedy that wasn't like a typical comedy. It's kind of a horror comedy, but it's like a warped one. So, you know, again, you know, talking just starting lenses, we, you know, I really wanted, you know, sort of a distorted view of reality. So we found, you know, we used some older anamorphics um which really like you know sort of twist the frame you know bow the edges of the frame a little bit on the sides and you know embrace this kind of like distorted look which um you know sort of mirrors the like you know the, the craziness that the characters are going through as they uh you know sort of descend into madness um yeah it was a lot of fun to shoot we mostly in like one tiny <laughs> semi-abandoned house in in los angeles that we, that we played for the apartment um, and it, it seemed like you used the blend of like warmer and cooler tones in a lot of the scenes which i think is really cool right yeah i mean i think color contrast is always you know a great tool to play with because it it, it makes the image more you know sort of three-dimensional because you create separation i mean you know naturally you know, an image is flat, right? I mean, because it's, uh, it's naturally, it's a 2D image. Um, if you're not shooting 3D, that is. Um, so, you know, we're always looking for ways to separate, you know, foreground and background. Obviously, we play with focus and lighting. That's and why color. every DP likes to use a lot of lamps in the background of every shot. I pointed that out to my sister one time. I'm like, pay attention if you're watching like any <laughs> movie or TV show, how... Mm -hmm. There's usually an unnatural amount of lamps in like somebody's house that are on. She's like, "Oh my god, I never noticed." That. I'm like, "Look, watch, watch." She's like, "I never right. noticed that before." <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, well, and you because you want it to feel motivated. You want to feel that the light exists in the scene, and and I think, you know, I mean, that's an important thing about like the production designer because you really want to like work with the production designer to build an environment. Ideally, that's lights itself that you can just like point your camera at the room or the space and it'll look interesting um and then if you need to bring in a little something for the faces or you know like do stuff there you need to do that but if you can just create a general environment um that that looks good and works for you then a lot of your job is done so a lot of that happens you know in pre-production i mean you know, like there's a scene in uh, in Die Hard where, you know, he's being interrogated by this like masked evil person in like a basement. And so, you know, I worked with uh, production design to add, you know, these metal lamps hanging throughout the space and then like a couple of like hanging fluorescents um, just to create these like areas of orange light for the the hanging lamps and green light for the fluorescence so we have this motivated color contrast in the space that the actors can kind of move through and you know it, it sort of lights itself and then you just go through that i mean for zoe we did a lot of like long single takes and i worked again with the production designer jeremy castles who was phenomenal um to uh to bring in you know, to build lighting into the set, like there's this uh, scene where they're uh, doing a rehearsal for the um, for the uh, the wedding the wedding dinner rehearsal, and you know I spent a lot of time working with him to find these like light chandelier lights we could hang over this long table that they're all sitting around, um, 
because once we got the right lights up, the, the whole room is just kind of lit and the faces have like a nice light on them. So we could, you know, put the camera on a dolly and just fly around the table wherever we wanted. And, you know, the characters were nicely lit, but we could also jump wide and see the instruments of the lighting without having to, you know, bring things in, out, in and out. So I think that's any time you can, you know, find a great production designer and like work to build in those lamps it's and so things important. to the scene. I agree. Yeah. I think that's something that uh, a lot of, I mean, I'm, you know, currently working in the, like the super, super low budget, practically no budget kind of indie film space. But, and I feel like there's a lot of really indie filmmakers that kind of make the mistake on skimping out on production design, which is such a big mistake. So it's something that's right. so important. And I think it's, you know, you can make deliberate choices, like you could have a sparse production design, especially in the indie world. I mean, I, you know, I jump around, like I've done larger projects, but then, you know, I did, you know, if something's cool, like I did the sci-fi film for my friend Rob Schroeder called Ultrasound, which was, you know, pretty, um, very like non-union and like small, but it was, you know, just a really, you know, fun experience because, you know, we had, you know, like a single camera and like, a tiny crew and just a few lights, but, you know, we had freedom in that we could, you know, make whatever choices we wanted in, in terms of the coverage and, you know, and putting the shots together. So, you know, the benefit of, you know, being out of the system is you can take these like risks and, and, and do like strange things and have, um, you know, some real fun with that. So I mean, I'm, you know, I'm maybe going to check out ultrasound. Yeah. Yeah. I'm it's just cool. looking it's it up about, right now. Oh, yeah. so I'm so sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I'll just say no, it's 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 kind of cool. It's like a sort of twisted hypnosis sci-fi thing where you don't know what's real and what isn't. And so, you know, we had these like different realities that, you know, were sort of giving hints as to, you know, what's going on and what isn't, but not trying to make it too clear. You're really sort of walking that line on this kind of film as to like ambiguity, like you want the audience to know that there's a purpose there, but you also want to, um, you know, keep it mysterious enough so that they kind of have to figure it out themselves. So it was very much that film and, you know, to that end, you're working to try to um, support these different worlds, but not make it completely obvious. I got to check it out. I, I was just looking it up. I saw one of the actresses, Rita Wool. She was in right. something that I recently, she was in a film. I recently got invited to a screening of this film called Birth, Rebirth. And she was also in that. And that was, that was pretty good as well. Yeah, she's, she was phenomenal. She's in many ways, the heart of the film. Um, and, you know, and I, I think her performance is really, you know, striking in it. And, you yeah, know, she again, was really was she, she was really strong in uh, Birth Rebirth. So yeah, that was uh... and, and you know that film was like a, you know it was lower budget, so we used um, you know the 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 Canon CNE lenses on and shot on a red, but those are still great primes. I mean, <laughs> shockingly yeah. good quality. Actually, I, I I quite like those lenses, and you know, again like playing a wider lens, getting it a little closer and lower. Well, that was language there and but also really like making choices where like a scene would be lit by like one light and then other things would fall into darkness um and you know 
playing with you know that kind of uh, more simplistic and stylized uh, those kind of simplistic and stylized setups where it became a little more abstract in that sense. Um, no, it was a lot of fun to shoot and um, I enjoyed that project. And, you know, I always enjoy anything where you get to be a little more expressive and like get into people's heads. You know, I did a film, you know, talking about the indie films I've done. I did another film called Sunchoke years ago for a friend of mine called Ben Cressiman. Um And that one um, is like the story of like, you know, a young lady that's being like trapped and, and she's like disturbed. And I'll say that as things progress, you realize how disturbed she actually is. But that whole film was an exercise in getting in, um, into, into her head. Um, and we really like, you know, played with, you know, various strange lenses. Um, you know, I always carry this old lens baby that's like the squishy lens, but you know, there's so many fun ways you can just mess with the image. Like you can take the lens out of the socket and sort of move it around. You can play with lens flares. We had this one lens I found where they've actually like motorized the iris in the lens so that it can move, um, separate of the lens. And what it does is it sort of makes the background of the image kind of you know, move, like the faster you move, the background kind of like rotates. So we did these like weird, like macro shots that like, I've never, I don't know, it's not supposed to be used like that, but we kind of did, I don't know what happened to those lenses in the end. They were like invented by some um, company. That, but we just did a lot of this really like subjective stuff where we're getting in the character's head. And I, I always, love any opportunity to like get more emotional and expressive with imagery and make it more like abstract and strange. Yeah. Uh, I really like your philosophy about um, how you verbalize your philosophy about cinematography and filmmaking. I think it's really cool. What, what are you working on uh, now? Like anything, any, well, I know right now there's a strike going right. on obviously, but is there anything in the pipeline that hasn't been released yet that, um, you know, right now, as you said, like we're in the middle of uh, actors and writers strike. So, you know, there were some projects that were interesting, possible horror comedy uh, that I was um, going to do. Um, but I don't know what the status of that is. And there's some other projects that are sort of on hold. Um, you know, I'm doing, I do this long running interview show for Variety. That's just like we interview all the Emmy and Oscar award-winning actors. Um, so that's possibly coming up soon. It's called Actors and Actors. It's oh, you, you, you filmed that? Yeah, yeah. That's great. <laughs> that's a great series. Yeah. Did you do it's the fun. one? Have you been doing that for a long time? Or I've been doing it for 17 seasons. <laughs> wow. So you, did you do the one with Bobby Carnavale? <clears throat> Probably. Yeah. And I've done like every single You've done episode. each episode. Yeah, so that's, that's fantastic. Um, and yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting because you get to just work with like every actor comes and sits in front of your lenses and has, you know, a conversation. Um, it looks it's like a great evolved series. Over the yeah. Years. Um, yeah. But, you know, we're going to probably do that soon. Um, you know, but I always, you know, love any opportunity to do narrative. So, 
you know, we'll see. There's there's a couple of things brewing, but right now it's just it's hard to say what's definitely right, happening right. because it's all I know. up in the air. And and the problem with the strike, you know, obviously it's important. We need to support the the writers and the um, actors, otherwise this business is unsustainable. But what happens is, you know, projects that were a sure thing before the strike may or may not <laughs> be a sure thing after the strike. So we're just gonna have to see um, what happens yeah. when it ends. Well. You're certainly a talented guy, so I'm I'm sure once things are resolved, you know, you'll be getting a lot of work. Yeah, I think, you know, there's like, you know, I've worked with a lot, I've been fortunate enough to work with a lot of good people. And, um, you know, in the end, you know, you just want to work on like a great project, a good script with good characters. Like, it doesn't matter what the, um, the genre is. If you've got a good story and good characters, you know, there's an opportunity. That's so to important. Stuff. This is something I've said on the podcast before because i think i think good cinematographers you know they want to make a beautiful looking image but to me the really great cinematographers go beyond that and it's they understand that the story supersedes just any particular just okay is this a pretty shot for my reel or anything like that like it's and to me you really strike me as somebody that um really likes to have a keen understanding of the story and you know how that dictates the look and feel of the film i try well like i said it all comes back to like reading those books and you know seeing pictures in your head and being like how can i um take these stories and the characters and then you know use imagery to like tell that story how can i reinforce you know this character and this moment and like you know convey this information you know, visually, and that's, you know, it always starts with the script, reading the script, sitting down with the director and just talking through the script detail by detail, line by line, looking at the beats you want to hit, looking at, you know, how you want to, the audience to feel, how you want to, you know, I, I sometimes think that there's like, there's sort of a, um, you know, you have this ability where you can, manipulate the audience up to a point and like where it becomes obvious and where it becomes subtle and you're like always trying to walk this line of like i want to push the image in a way that i'm influencing the audience's experience of the film but there's a point where you push it so much that you make them aware that they're watching a movie um, i know what you mean which, because uh, my philosophy is that film is like hypnosis you know and if somebody I mean, if somebody's really into a good film, it's like what do they say? It's like, oh, I was really into that movie. It's like they're they're kind of into the hypnosis of the film, like they're lost in the world of the film, and you're sort of either in that or you're not, you know? Exactly, and you run a risk. Like if you break the audience out, if you take the audience and they're suddenly like, I'm watching a movie, I'm seeing the artifice of it, then you've broken that hypnosis, you've broken that spell, and they, you may lose their connection with the story and the characters. So you've got to like, walk this fine line of like how much can i manipulate the audience how much can i bend or break this image while not you know breaking the audience's belief that they're invested in the in the form of the character and, and that's always something that interests me and i like going right up to that line like trying to like push things and tweak things right up to the edge but still keep the audience you know believing hypnotized as you put it well said matthew rudenberg now we're going to get to the next portion of the podcast where we ask, ask each guest to discuss two of their favorite movie scenes from any films. And 
you chose a couple of great ones and we'll start off with 2001 a space odyssey right well you know the reason i i picked it was hard to pick of course but um i know, you know it's I'm hard big, to pick right but i'm actually a, a huge sci-fi fan that's like a lot of those books i was reading as a kid were sci-fi and arthur c clark was actually you know one of the authors i, I read a lot of um and you know when i was a, when, oh no so i'm sorry okay. i was just gonna say when i was a kid i saw me and my brother saw the sequel 2010 the year we made contact way before i saw 2001 I tried, if, if tried, you even want to really call it a sequel it's you know it's such right. a different kind of film i mean it's a standalone good sci-fi film but i don't really think of them as so connected right, right. Um, well i mean i think it's interesting because you look at the difference between the two films and i think you know part of the difference is that um you know 2010 is very explicit in like what's going on whereas um 2001 he really like avoids being too explicit it's much more emotional it's much more expressive and that's i think why 2001 really like has become an iconic film and it stands the test of the time because you know it's not just telling the story it is turning those words right into pictures but it's creating this audience experience and i mean that particular sequence the in you know the, the jupiter and beyond the infinite is like one of the most intense experiences of that because you know here you have this like very like complex situation right where this character is going through a wormhole and transforming into another being uh, a being of pure energy and like how do you depict this in visual terms without <laughs> just using a bunch of words to explain exactly what's happening and that's why you know i love that sequence so much especially you know because at the time you know the you know you have kubrick creating this like very emotive experience right where you look at his face and then you look at what he's seeing so you're put in his experience you see his point of view you see what he sees and that sort of manipulates how you feel and then you see how he reacts to it, but as close in his eyeball close in his face that's you know being step printed and, and ramped down to one frame per second so it's like jittering and, and moving and it's it's such a powerful emotional experience but the effect is so powerful, but the process that they created on it was so amazing because none of the technology, there was no CG, you know, there was no, the only way they could make this is so they hired this guy, this 23 year old called Douglas Turnbull, who is like an animator and who didn't, had never worked in a feature film. And he like was an engineer and animator and built these like crazy rigs to make the wormhole effect where he took like a 65 millimeter camera and put on a rail with like a backlit painting moving back and forward and pushing it towards it to make these lights so there's this like you know there's this alchemy like the filming you know processing the film so the colors change i mean there's something like amazing about this like combination of um um you know, science and art that, that go together to build these things, to create this like emotional effect that, that, that I, I love so much. Um, I mean, it's almost like, I don't know if you're familiar with Brackage, um, who would like paint on the negative and like mess with, with imagery in that sense. And that's like one of the, you know, the magics, you know, the magical things about film and especially like that older film process where you, you, to create these things, it wasn't just like, you know, typing on a keyboard, you actually had to like physically figure out what you're doing. So yeah, it was incredible. You know, did you, by the way, see. did you read the Michael Benson book that came out a few years ago, Space Odyssey, Stanley Kubrick, Arthur C. Clarke and the making of the masterpiece? 
I don't think I have. I should check that out. It's, I give it a hard recommend. It's mm-hmm. it's one of the best. I actually listen to the audio version because I'm I'm an audible junkie. Um, cool. So I listen. You know, a lot of times I'm commuting, so it's a little bit right. Um, just easier, but it's just it's so incredible. I think you'll really appreciate this book because it, it's the most in depth sort of thing that. It, uh, you could imagine about the making of this film. And it was just, it really, I always had a respect for Kubrick before, like well before this book, but I mean, it's just, it's just incredible. Really what he pulled off over 50 years ago. I mean, 55 yeah, years mean, ago, right? I mean, it's so, it's so prescient, like the stuff he did. And like it so he, is like, like the thing with things. the obelisk, like these are ideas that yeah. people are talking about now. Like, Hey, have we been, you know, manipulated by another species like is it on the table like for somebody for somebody to think about those kind of concepts like 50 plus years ago that i think it's wild right and you know and just in the filmmaking language i mean like you know he did the rotating you know rotating spaceship for zero gravity and then you have nolan doing that i mean the the shot of the helmet with the lights reflected in it and then you have I mean, this is still like the 90s, that Radiohead, like, no surprises video where he's, like, in the fishbowl with the same reflections, you know, on it. Like, these, like, images are so, you know, defining for everyone. It's become uh, such a part of our knowledge of film. Absolutely. Um, But it was all on the cutting edge. It had never been done before. And one thing that was incredible, because I was kind of just watching it with my wife last night. She had never seen the film before. And it was just just thinking about how just the opening of the film first of all it just starts off with just a black frame for three minutes that takes guts just to do that right just like you know like the you know you have the for three solid minutes feels like an eternity and it's you know before the you see any visuals and then you don't really hear any dialogue in the film at all for the first 25 minutes you know, because the whole Dawn of Man sequence is about like 25 minutes long until they're in the spaceship. So that right. takes a lot of guts and mastery as a filmmaker just to like, okay, this film is just being really told in images and sounds, but without dialogue. That's incredible. Right. And then it comes back because like, you know, he um, it's talking talking again about, you know, like how you want to manipulate the audience and how much you want them to understand and how much you want them to guess and how much you want them to feel. You know, I think he made a lot of choices in that film where, you know, some of the stuff that's explicitly written in the book, he cuts out. So he was kind of the master of like walking that line of ambiguity where, you know, if you're in the right point of ambiguity, you can cause the audience to engage. It's like that old, um, I forget what film it was, but you know, where they like see someone through a doorway, it might be in a Godfather or, uh, but they framed it so that you can't quite see the person. Um, and, you know, they asked the director, like, why did you frame it like that? The person's cut off. And then he's like, watch during the screening and the whole audience like leans, you know, to try to see it's through incredible. the doorway. Yeah. But it's, you know, when you leave that level of ambiguity, you force the audience to lean into the film to try to, you know, create to engage mentally to create their own meaning. If you just tell them exactly what to think, 
you know, they may not engage in the same way, but if you give them enough information that it inspires, you know, thought and, you know, debate, I mean, that's, I mean, I think something amazing that the, you know, that the arts allows us to do. And I think, you know, 2001 is, is phenomenal at that, inviting people to come to their own conclusions and, and understandings of the film. I couldn't agree more. And I'm glad you mentioned the fact about the audience, because this is a story I've told a couple of times on the podcast, but when I was younger, I'd tried to watch that film a couple of times. Like I remember I was in seventh grade and the earth, but like, I remember uh, our earth science teacher showed us the film, like in one of those old school when they wheel in the television sort of things. And for whatever Just reason, as Cooper contended. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, I was just totally just checked out. Like I was just, you know, just wasn't into the movie and just probably daydreaming, probably doodling in my composition notebook, you know, as much as I loved watching movies in class, you know, I was always happy when they wheeled out that thing, but I just wasn't into the film, tried watching it on TV a couple of times after that, just couldn't get into it. And then one day it was like, I saw that it was playing at this movie theater at the IFC center in New York. And it was, they had it on the big screen and like really nice remastered version of it and i was totally from like just totally mesmerized by the film like completely into the hypnosis of just i i felt like i i personally felt at that screening like i understood everything that kubrick was trying to convey <laughs> whether that's true or not maybe is immaterial because i felt i sort of felt like oh my god oh my god this is incredible you know I mean, and I think that's, you know, I mean, that's what he was doing. I mean, he was trying to create this immersive experience. I mean, you know, at the time, I think Turnbull was working on those those crazy systems where they took like three cameras, right? And they shot three images and tried to put them on a big dome, like the Cinerama dome kind of thing, where you were in this immersive world. That's what I, I believe that's what where Kubrick met um, Turnbull is he was working on films, like some kind of moon film, which was that kind of immersive experience. And that was... I think very much his goal with, um, you know, making 2001 was creating this immersive experience where you feel like you're in the world. And, you know, like you experience, you can't have that experience when you're sitting in a class full of kids and there's like a small four by three standard deaf TV away from you. You don't get that kind of involvement in the film as you do when exactly. it's like wrapping around you and the sound and everything in the darkness is just pulling you into the film. So, you know, the, the display medium, is important and i and you know and that's one of the great things about you know theater and i do hope <laughs> you know post covid the whole you know theater going uh, i agree system, i hope and post streaming uh, like sticks uh, around because it is very sad how like you know many people seem so happy to uh, you know we've got great systems at home but there's still something special about like going into a room with like one dedicated purpose and just immersing yourself fully in a story that, you know, you can't do when you're looking at your phone or, you know, making a snack or getting up from your couch. I mean, however good your theater is, um, I wouldn't want that to go away. I completely agree. So we'll talk about the next film, um, which is Inglorious Bastards. I got to give a shout out to former guest Christina Richardson who uh, is a director here in New York, and she also referenced the same scene. It's an incredible, incredible scene. The Quentin Tarantino's 2009 film, Inglorious Bastards, shot by Robert Richardson. And I'll let you uh, talk a little bit more about it. 
Right. I mean, you know, there's so many great things about the scene. I mean, um, you know, personally, the whole film is like very um, uh, powerful for me because my family is actually um, historically German Jews and many of them were killed in, in the Holocaust, um, including uh, many of them being from France. Um, and, uh, and they fled. Yeah, so there's that aspect. So South Africa, how we got to South Africa is many of them, South Africa is one of the countries that was accepting um, people fleeing uh, the Holocaust, um, which is how my uh, grandparents ended up there. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, so this takes even more of significance for you. So, you know, so there's something very powerful in that there for me. Um, and then, of course, it's just, you know, the scene work and the dialogue is amazing. But, you know, the reason that it jumps out of me and it strikes me is, is, um, and you know, maybe, you, that, maybe you can give some context to people that for whatever reason aren't familiar with the film and the scene, right. what it's about. Oh, sure, sure. So, I mean, Inglourious Bastards is a story of, uh, in Nazi Germany, there are a, um, you know, there's this uh, guy, Hans Landau, who's um, called the Jew Hunter, and his job is to go out and, and find the hiding Jews and round them up so the Nazis, uh, you know, can kill him. Um, and in this opening scene of the movie, he is visiting a farmhouse to interrogate a, a French um, farmer, um, who he happens to know is, is sheltering some Jews. They're actually hiding under the floorboards. And in the scene, he goes forward, starts appearing to be a normal conversation, then becomes more threatening until he, you know, forces him to reveal the uh, the hidden Jews under the floorboards and then calls in his soldiers and, and kills them, allowing one character, uh, Shoshana, to escape at the end. Um, and it's an incredibly powerful scene. And really, the scene comes down to essentially dialogue between two characters. That that just talk, um, which the, Tarantino you know, is so master. He's so masterful at that kind of uh, almost those non sequiturs, right? Like of just you know, it's like hey, you know, I apologize about the formality here. It's you know, somebody else was. He's like, well, because you you guys have already came to my house to look for Jews. Like it's like, and I apologize about the formalities. Like you know, anytime that there's a new management in place there's a slight duplication of efforts that's usually a waste of time <laughs> and so just the the whole escalation of the tension from just it feels like you know this thing that feels like he's making it he's giving this him like a false sense of comfort even though there's that underlying tension there but just the whole ramping up of it is incredible exactly exactly and the thing that that strikes me cinematographically about that that's fascinating is that he does something with the camera in the middle of the scene that supports the change of tone so cinematographically in this dialogue scene which is otherwise you know somewhat simple two people talking he does something very interesting which is he crosses the line at a specific point in in the scene the camera does this dolly move where it starts on one side of the table and it moves around behind the character's head to the other side of the table which I think is very interesting because, you know, what it is, is it's talking about one of the most basic elements of cinematography and dialogue. And she's when you walk in and you set up a scene and you block the scene, one of the first choices you have to make is which side of the line am I going to be on? And, you know, just in case any viewers don't know, when you set up a dialogue scene, there's two people talking to each other, right? There's two faces and there's an invisible line 
between the two faces. And for the close-ups to match, so it looks like one person is looking at the other, you need to stay on the same side of the line. If you jump the line between close-ups, it'll look like one person's looking to the one side and the other person's looking to the other side, and it'll appear to the viewer that they aren't actually talking to each other. So one of the first choices you make is, what side of the line am I going to shoot this dialogue scene on? Um, and then that feeds into a lot of other choices because <clears throat> following that choice, you can decide like which side of the line am I going to light the camera, the characters from, you know, there's what we call smart side lighting and dumb side lighting and like dumb side lighting is lighting from the same side as the camera, which tends to be flatter. Smart side lighting is lighting from the other side of the camera, which tends to be darker because the shadow side is towards you. So all these decisions feed off this like initial choice. So what's interesting about the way that he blocks and lights and shoots the scene is when they first sit down at this table, which is lit with this light bouncing off of it from some unknown space, which is Robert Richardson's sort of staple lighting thing, which is gorgeous. And it starts on the dumb side of the light, uh, the coverage. So the characters are front lit and more flatly and brightly lit. And this is the beginning of the scene when things are a little more friendly, like we don't know as much the menace of, of what's going on here. Um, and then at a certain point in the scene, when the Jew hunter starts asking about the details of the characters and um, the farmer is, is trying to pretend that he doesn't know them, but is not doing a great job of pretending it, you see the camera switch from this bright side of the line to the far side, to the black side, and everything gets darker. And I think this is also the point where it starts becoming clear to the audience that, you know, there's more going on here that you know the, the the threat becomes more apparent and shortly after that the camera drops down to show us the hidden jews under the floorboards and then the scene continues on the dark side of the line now that this level of menace has been introduced into the scene up until it's so palpable very... after that moment like the tension exactly. really you could cut the tension with a knife right after that and that's like you know you know tarantino and richardson really playing with some of the most basic elements of coverage to emphasize, you know, the menace and the power of the scene. I mean, you talk, you know, you obviously you think about stuff like Hitchcock, right? Which is surprise and tension, right? He always talks about the bomb under the table. And like, there's two ways you can play that. There's surprise and there's tension. Surprise is when you don't know there's a bomb under the table and it goes off and you're surprised. Tension is when you know there's a bomb under the table and you're waiting for it to go off. And those are like sort of the two modes. And that's what he's playing with again here. The beginning you don't know what's under the table you don't know what the meaning is the scene is flatter it's brighter and then you switch to the other side now you show the bomb under the table now you have darkness you have tension so it, it, it really is just um an amazing uh, mastery of the tools of cinematography the basic elements of them and using them you know to, to tell the story and to emphasize the character and the narrative and the tension of the scene by manipulating the very basic tools that we use to to tell a story really well said and i gotta just add that um for some reason there's something so villainous about hans landa just drinking that glass of milk in the beginning of the scene i don't know if it's like a nod to alex from a clockwork orange or something but just there's right. something interesting <laughs> yeah no that's a good point i mean um, you know, it comes back to Kubrick, of course. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. But, yeah, Paul Thomas take, Anderson said, we're all children of Kubrick. <laughs> right. Well, I, you know, I have, I have a theory, which is like, you know, 
Kubrick is such a master that your favorite Kubrick film doesn't tell you what is the best Kubrick film. It just tells you which genre you like best. Yeah, <laughs> so like, I love 2001 because I love sci-fi, but all Kubrick's films are amazing. I think if you like, um, you know, psychological thrillers, you might say Clockwork Orange. You know, if you like comedies, you might say Dr. Strangelove. You know, if you like horror, you might say The Shining. But they're all masters. He's a master of the genre, and each, you know, film he makes is, you know, Oh, he was just, yeah, he was so, he was just orders of magnitude above everybody. And it's incredible. Well, Matthew, I, where could people follow along with, uh, with you as, you know, with your work? Are you on social media? Do you have? Yeah. 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 I mean, I'd say Instagram, I have a website. It's www.mrudenberg.com. But, you know, I, I do post Instagram. So, I would uh, go there and follow. It's Rudenberg underscore DP. Thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Too, man. Great chatting. Likewise. Thank you for listening to the Film Situation Podcast. 